Navigating the Cloudscape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the AWS reInvent 2018 Cloudscape Special Podcast. Just as with Azure and GCP, we will cover the latest and greatest that was announced at reInvent this year with our panel of industry experts. Today, I'm joined by Pierre Glusseau, who is going to fill us in on the updates he thought were the coolest. Hey, Pierre, welcome to the Cloudscape. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me here. Glad to have you back, folks. If you want to hear some more from Pirig, he was on the Datascape where we talked about how to migrate thousands of servers to the public cloud. It was a really interesting show, and I, if you haven't checked it out, I, I suggest you do. And speaking of the Datascape podcast, I've got a little bit of housekeeping. Just a reminder to you folks that I will be moving all of the cloud update content, all of the future content, onto the Datascape channel. So this will be the last Cloudscape episode I publish on the Cloudscape channel and everything else. We'll still do the show, still have industry experts, still go monthly or aspire for monthly, but we'll publish everything on the Datascape channel. So please update your podcast software of choice to point to the Datascape if you're not already a listener. All right, enough housekeeping. Let's dive right into the updates. Period. was there any particular theme that stood out to you this year? In this year's AWS reInvents announcements, there's definitely a whole lot about machine learning. So a lot of emphasis was put on uh, the machine learning technologies or anything kind of AI related. And so there are a lot of announcements in that field and a little more than in the other areas at AWS. Okay. Then, and it's really not surprising if we look at the other, the AWS competitors, I mean, they're all in on machine learning as well. It's a very hot topic right now in the industry. So can't can't say I'm too surprised about that. So let's dive into one of your top updates, which was the AWS Outpost. Tell us more. Right. So I, I decided to choose from, uh, let's say, the, the coolest AWS announcements, in my opinion. So AWS Outpost is one of them. From my understanding, we don't have a whole lot of details on how it works yet. But what it comes down to is that basically you'll be running AWS on-prem. So that's uh, really cool. So you will be receiving some hardware that you can rack yourself, and you will be administering that hardware from your AWS console, just transparently. Okay. The things I do know is that I believe it runs, it requires uh, a bit of VMware on your end, so you need to have a couple of uh, VMware products. I'm not entirely sure, but that those are the rumors I've heard. Okay, and so are you? Are, do we have to purchase this hardware, or does Amazon send it to us? We pay... Kind of fractionally or, or what? I believe it's pay-as-you-go kind of kind of service. As I said, I don't have too many details on this, but it's going to be pay-as-you-go. They're going to ship out the hardware to you, and it's going to be to you to rack it and, I guess, connect it according to their instructions. So I think it's really cool to actually be able to manage your own hardware AWS style. That's, like, truly amazing. What's kind of weird here is that it kind of contradicts the whole move to the cloud thing where, you know, okay, we don't want to deal with hardware anymore. So that perspective there is kind of a a different, but there are some customers that needed that kind of approach, right? Where they, for some legal policies or maybe just because they were a little chilly or not ready to move to the cloud yet. And so this looks like a very good intermediate approach to start moving them to the cloud maybe, or Mm -hmm. just giving them the feel for the cloud on-prem. 
Yeah, we've been following um, Azure Stack for some time, and I, I think that it's a very intelligent strategy on on any of the vendors to to do this and kind of coax people by offering them cloud like functionality without the concerns or or what have you of the compliance or security if if they are worried about that that sort of thing. So it's it's neat to see um, Amazon creating their own take on it. So very cool stuff. And I you know I I know that I put this on my list uh, for Santa. Let's talk about AWS DeepRacer. Yes. I'm a guy that's into drones and rovers and, and that kind of stuff, remote control vehicles of all sorts. So to me, AWS DeepRacer uh, looked really appealing. It looks like a really cool uh, Christmas toy. Uh, so it's a one eighteenth scale RC car, pretty much, but it's packed with, uh, obviously, sensors. So it must have some IMUs in there and other sensors of other sorts, obviously a video camera. And so the idea is for you to hook that up to the machine learning services online in AWS and that you would treat your data and, and basically drive your drone that way. So, yeah, I'm expecting to see a lot of open source code development around these and people start building some really fancy things. Also, it runs uh, ROS, which is a robotics open source toolkit, which has been around for, for a while. So anyone who's been playing around with these kinds of toys is going to be immediately familiar with them. Okay. What kind of languages does one need to know to, to play with this? So I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure that any pretty much anything is going to be possible between Java and Python. It's going to be, I know uh, ROS supports a variety of languages, so I don't okay. see any reason for us to be constrained to anything specific. Okay. Very, yeah, very, very neat to bring autonomous vehicles, uh, something I've written about over the years on our blog, uh, to, to your own backyard. I think that's awesome. Can't wait right. with it. I'm sure we're going to see this uh, being like uh, on school projects and things of sort or university projects where students are going to learn learn how machine learning works on AWS. So yeah, uh, definitely a huge, uh, a good play there by, by AWS. Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk about, I know you're really excited about AWS Satellite. Yes, so AWS Satellite. So people might think that's, that may be a little extravagant in 2018. However, you know, uh, space launch is, is uh, becoming cheaper and cheaper every day. We see it with uh, SpaceX being successful and being able to reduce cost. And it's only a matter of time until not only large companies are able to, to send off in space their own satellites to create their own data networks. And so having the solution to connect to that and manage that, that mesh of satellites out there is, is actually really, really cool. And they already have some customers that are using it. I, I know I think it's a Lockheed Martin. So that, that type of company has access to that immediately. But I could see that in two years from now, maybe uh, slightly smaller companies are, are going to be able to, to leverage that as well and have their own private satellite networks gravity in space. So that's, that's um, really, really cool. Hmm, okay, that that is cool, and I know you were really jazzed about some of. Well, I mean, we started with uh, the theme was machine learning. So why don't you walk us through the, the top machine learning announcements? Right. So well, there were a lot of uh, there were already a lot of AWS uh, machine learning services, and so uh, and at reInvent they announced some more tools on the extensions of existing tools, uh, extensions on SageMaker, for example. So we've got a lot of new ML services, such as Ground Truth, RL, which is reinforcement learning. We have a marketplace for all the machine learning tools. So we're seeing like uh, not only specific services, but also some kind of ecosystem that is starting to appear around all the machine learning services that AWS has to offer. So in the machine learning space, so data scientists always have 
weird sources for their data, right? And it's not always curated, uh, nicely put together data. And sometimes it comes as dirty as uh, having to scan sheets of paper and, and stuff like that. And so Amazon Text Extract is, is really cool. It can actually extract. It's a very advanced uh, OCR. Think of it as a OCR software from back a, a few a few uh, years ago, but it can do hundreds of pages per minute, right? You can feed it huge amount of files and it will transform that into text for you. And so that's kind of a building block for you to start playing around with machine learning. You're going to need a lot of data, a lot of original data. And so this is a way for you to actually create that source data that you will input into your machine learning algorithms. So very cool text extract. Uh, looks like a very cool service there. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds neat. Besides that, so we have uh, machine learning insights for a quick site. So that's actually kind of, let's say, an outlier detection kind of approach there. Uh, it's a little service that basically the idea is to tr track uh, latest trends, uh, find out outliers and data, and forecast future results. So use cases are to identify uh, business drivers, summarize data in simple ways, make nice presentations, and show uh, those trends and outliers. So there's a preview of ML Insights right now for Amazon uh, QuickSight that's been released. And so this simplifies a whole lot the analysis of, of uh, your data and interpretation of, of your data. Right. The interesting stuff is often in the outliers. So, so right. that's cool. <laughs> And I know there were a number of security updates. I was fairly interested in Security Hub. Why don't you walk us through that? Right. So Security Hub. So we um, AWS already had a couple uh, security services out there. They were kind of independent and not really tied well together. So what AWS Security Hub does is to bring to you some kind of a single pane of glass view on all those different uh, services. So on Amazon Guard Duty, AWS Inspector, and Amazon Massey. And along with some other third-party integrations that I guess are, are tightly related to, to security and uh, intrusion detection and so on. So that gives, that's going to give our, our customers running in AWS a nice single pane of glass view of all the security in their, their account, which is very cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And what about transit gateways? So not many people were just running a single AWS account in, in Amazon today, right? So they have multiple accounts and they also have multiple VPCs that are peered together, usually in the star shaped. You have a central VPC and, and around that gravitate other VPCs that are transitive and network way. And so you have to do build that. Then you add to this to your central VPC. You used to add some gateways, your VPN gateway, uh, maybe your direct connect. Well, basically, all those individual steps of VPC peering, VPN gateways, and direct connect are now consolidated into one single service, which is AWS Transit Gateway. So you only have one step to build uh, all of that. So simplifies a lot your network layout and, and the way to build things in AWS. Pretty okay. cool. Okay, cool. And let's talk about Control Tower. Right. So a Control Tower is going to be very useful for uh, new customers that are migrating to AWS. So I was just talking about, you know, customers don't have a single AWS account. They're going to have multiple accounts. Uh, they need to be tied together. They're going to have different functions. Maybe one uh, account is going to be for logging. One is going to be for maybe big data. One is going to be for security. And so basically what AWS came up with is this uh, framework of accounts that are pretty much common across a variety of businesses out there. So 
basically you're going to be clicking and instead of creating those four counts individually and separately, it's going to be creating that framework, that entire framework for you at once in a very easy steps. So what control tower does is actually controls the landing zones, your AWS landing zones behind the scenes. So that includes, uh, by default, I think it includes four accounts and some add-in products that can be deployed using the AWS service catalog, such as centralized logging solutions, AWS managed Active Directory, and the directory connector for AWS SSO. Those kinds of things are included in there as well. Package to set up in AWS and then start migrating to AWS. Okay. Let's shift gears and start talking about some of the database announcements. I know there was a significant Aurora update for multi-region replicas. Why don't you walk us yes. through Yes, right. So that's a very interesting update there for Aurora. We used to have uh, multi-region read replicas. So that was, you know, if we translate that into MySQL land, it sounds very regular. You have multiple slaves uh, slaving off of, of, of a master and you hit those to perform reads. However, you can write to those slaves. And it was very difficult, even in MySQL land, to have multi-master setups, or let's say a little more convoluted. Well, now Aurora actually automates that, and you can have uh, multiple masters in different regions, which means that you can have applications in a geographical region that writes to Aurora with the same exact latency that your application in another geolocation would write to Amazon Aurora. So very cool expansion to Aurora. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing this in in all of the cloud vendors where they're, you know, really embracing the need for global distribution read write of of data. You know, and the use cases are are really interesting as you think about you know the ships or transportation or transport trucks or what have you. You know, airplanes, all kinds of right. businesses. You know, needing to serve a global market instead of you know a local market. So it's it's kind of like a no-brainer, but it's kind of also odd that to me that you know we're just getting to a lot of this now, but very cool technology. And I you know I know a lot of MySQL DBAs, and I've heard lots of headaches and belly aching around you know the the management of of multi-master, multiple slaves and stuff. Lots of headaches to be had, I'm sure. And there's a new time stream, time series database, uh, time stream. Yes, so uh, AWS time stream. So we know uh, time series databases mostly in a metrics world, right, where you gather metrics from your various applications, you need to store that somewhere. And so time series uh, or is your best choice there. So we know it's time series such as WhisperDB, the database behind Graphite, for example. We know of InfluxDB, a more recent uh, time series database. There are several others, OpenTSDB. Uh, some people even use Cassandra as a time series database. Well, basically, this is point-and-click service. It was actually quite painful to have a nice HA setup or, or setup that could scale up and scale down of a time series database. And with this, it seems that it is going to be very simple to do. Hopefully, we're going to see all the required connectors show up in the coming months so that we can start migrating all of our open source stacks for time series database over to this amazing service. And obviously time, time series aggregation, I think is configurable and automatic. So it will, let's say that you're logging your metrics at an interval of five seconds. And you want that for a duration of a month and anything older than a month, you'd like aggregations over five minutes. That's configurable in time stream and it will do that automatically for you. So that's uh, very cool. 
Yeah, that is. And I also thought that the quantum ledger database was pretty interesting. Nothing to do with quantum computing, though. No, nothing to do with quantum computing. It's actually more of a, a service that's closer to the blockchain service. It's meant to be used. I, I think we're going to see it used in, in combination with blockchain, but also we might see it being used um, alone. So it's basically an ongoing ledger that cannot be modified. It's kind of an alternative to the Ethereum framework, if you're familiar with that in the mm-hmm. blockchain world. More su- specifically, it uses a journal inside to keep track of all its transactions and keeps makes it immutable. Sequence history of changes to, to a transaction log. The main use case there is going to be obviously in financial transactions tracking, such as clearing settlements, international payments, compliance and audit, all that sort of stuff. So I, I could see that probably yeah, finance institutions are going to be interested by this service. And do you know much about the underlying architecture behind it? Like, is it is it kind of point click and deploy and you've got an immutable ledger or is there a lot of setup involved? Like no, Ethereum? I don't. I believe it's no, it's a very point and click type of setup. Underneath, I believe it uses some open source frameworks that very similar to Ethereum. So that's pretty much the end product you're going to get, but only with a couple of clicks, which makes a big difference for us. Yeah. So very cool. Yeah, yeah, that it, it sure does. And that's, that is really neat technology to bring to, you know, finance and, and whatnot. I love this immutable ledger stuff. I'm not a big Bitcoin person, but the technology behind it is very interesting uh, to me. Oh, for sure. And so also there was a DynamoDB update. Uh, why don't you walk us through that one? Right. So I actually classified this one in, in like uh, the serverless announcements because this is a, a pricing model change to DynamoDB that makes it a better candidate to use in serverless applications. So people that would kind of badmouth uh, serverless uh, deployments would say, okay, well, you still need storage, you still need a database, you still need something that's going to run on a server, right? And that you're going to pay for even when it's idle. And actually, this is actually a response to that. So this time, DynamoDB pay on demand, it really scales automatically for you as, as it needs, and it scales down to a minimum so it's a kind of a pricing model we saw elsewhere, but it's brought to this more complex database architecture that can scale up and down as, as you need it. So a very cool feature for people who were kind of reluctant to uh, use DynamoDB because of its pricing model. Right. Yeah, understood. And we can't not have a Lambda announcement, I don't think. Why don't you walk <laughs> us through that on the topic of serverless? Right. So there are several uh, Lambda announcements. So a few of them, just more support for, for languages. For, for example, we're now, they're now supporting Ruby 2.5. Um, you can now do your own custom runtimes so it, it can actually support any language you wish or before you were limited to some specifics. So you can do PHP, COBOL, C++, Erlang, uh, whatever you can build your own custom runtime to run on Lambda that will compile your, your code for you. The next one is AWS Lambda Layers. So that's kind of eliminating the dependency hell of of libraries across your stack. So this, you set all of your dependencies, your recurring libraries in a consistent way in an AWS Lambda layer, and you're gonna be able to move that over to a new stack and so on. It ensures consistency, easier updates, makes your code a whole lot clearer where that all those depths are, are extracted out of your code and into 
a Lambda layer. Pretty cool feature there. And the last one, which is very nice, is that we can now expose Lambdas with ALBs. The only way to expose the Lambda function to make it public before this was to use the API gateway and CloudFront. And so now you can just use a simple ALB to expose your service, which makes that setup a whole lot simpler. For Just for those unfamiliar or new to serverless and or Lambda, could you explain what ALB is? ALB is an application load balancer. So it's the newer version of the Elastic uh, load balancer. It's a little more flexible, has a, new, a few more features, and a different costing model okay. compared to the ALB. It's a different type of load balancer. Okay, great. And let's move on to, sadly, the only Windows announcement I think we have on our list. Why don't you talk about it? <laughs> well, that's kind of my fault, right? I'm not a huge uh, Windows guy, so I had a little more trouble finding some ones that were interesting to me. However, I saw one that actually made a whole lot of sense and was pretty cool. So it's the AWS FSX for, for Windows File Server. So it's basically a cloud-native Windows Server file sharing solution. So you don't have to bother setting up your own uh, EFS or clustered file system and to set up your Samba shares and all that, ACLs and so on, active directory bound. That all is a nice service now for you to manage, which is which is really cool. So what's what's the use case for a Windows native file server like this versus uh, regular and conventional cloud storage? You know, blob storage has its limits as well. Uh, you write once and you don't update that well your blob storage you basically have to wipe the file and create an entirely new one on blob storage whereas a true file system like this one can actually take block updates on a file so there are some some cases where just blob storage is not really the good way to do it you need a, a file share of some sort right i don't really have ex excellent examples right now but there are tons of use cases where actually a file share makes more sense than using blob storage. Obviously, obviously, anytime you're going to append to files. Yes, yeah, I mean, exactly. Brainer. Good, good. And now development is not my strong point, so we'll wade in <laughs> here. I'll do my best. Let's talk about AppMesh. Right. So AppMesh is kind of is the port of uh, Istio in the AWS land. So this actually, it's a service mesh to allow you to monitor and control communications between all your different microservices, right? And so people that have been starting to play around with containers and have tons of microservices uh, talking to each other, crisscrossing communications, it's becoming something very hard to track, to follow, even to debug, to find logs. And so uh, Istio service mesh kind of brings a solution to that. And, and AWS saw this as a big product of 2018 and uh, put it in their services this year. And I think that was a good good choice. We've seen, yeah, we're seeing service messages being more and more touted as potential solutions to, yeah, solving the problem of chattiness between uh, microservices and understanding exactly what was going on there. So very good feature to be added to mm -hmm. container land in AWS. Yeah, no, no doubt. Now, this one is, uh, I've heard several people, this come up a couple times in my conversations over the last little while. Let's talk about Firecracker. Yes, so AWS uh, Firecracker. So that actually generated a lot of buzz uh, this year at reInvent. So it's a virtualization technology that allows you to create and manage micro VMs that are customized mostly for serverless type of applications. So think of it as maybe containers on steroids a bit so what they did is basically took out all the bells and whistles of 
existing virtual machine technology to to make the resource footprint as small as they could to keep the startup time as as uh, low as they could and the attack surface, of course, uh, from a security mm-hmm. standpoint. So these VMs start like in uh, in milliseconds, right? And they're up and running and already serving traffic, uh, for examples. And they have a memory overhead that is very small, around five five megabytes uh, per VM. I can see this becoming a building block for 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 new things in the future. So maybe things such as Kubernetes will start looking into Firecracker, um, but it's going to be more low level kind of. Uh, use cases for it. I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think that developers will actually start using Firecracker themselves, but we're going to see Firecracker being used as the core of new products around orchestration that are going to be released in, in the future. It seems like, and maybe this is a, a product for a future show, I know I'll learn a lot, but it seems like it, uh, you know, it's kind of a hard sell against microservices, Yeah. you know, deciding between the two. Kind of on the same vein, let's talk about, I know you were very excited about Elastic Fabric Adapter. Yes, so the Elastic Fabric Adapter. So that actually brings makes it possible to do a high-performance computing in the cloud. So before that, we needed very specific hardware, uh, network interconnects that were a lot quicker than what AWS or other cloud providers had to offer. And so those kind of the workloads were just not migrate good candidates for the cloud. Now with this kind of a fabric adapter, it is going to be possible to start seeing these uh, use cases move to the cloud. And these people run a lot of power. They need a lot of, they need large server farms to do their calculations. And so getting rid of that on-prem is going to be extremely valuable to them and definitely a good move to start moving those work. So these are like, uh, for example, there's going to be uh, weather forecasting applications finite element analysis apply applications, things of the sort. You're going to see computational fluid dynamics, uh, you know, more very, very science use cases are now going to be able to, to move to the cloud. So very cool. Yeah, indeed. Well, and, and, and enable, I mean, enabling university students and universities and anyone who has uh, plenty of intelligence, but not necessarily plenty of funds to leverage new computational horsepower is, uh, is, is a great thing for, for all of us. So, and, and actually, let's stay, stay on the hardware front. I know there were a couple new instance types that I think were fairly interesting. Let's talk about the new A1 instances. Right. So these are the new, very, very small, tiny instances sizes that AWS released. So they're actually, um, think of it as a, a Raspberry Pi. So they're pretty much, they're running that probably very similar ARM CPU with a similar kind of uh, hardware capabilities. So the use case for that is going to be very small services that are used seldomly, right? This is going to be a lot cheaper. Let's say the unit of cost versus, uh, let's say, an EC2 T2 instance that can auto-scale between 1 and 10 instances. Well, the unit of cost of of having using this kind of instance types is going to be a a lot lesser, right? So uh, quite interesting product. So ARM is specific. So you're going to need to think about what applications can actually run on ARM. Let's say the Linux OS will run in most of its packages, but if you have something fancy, you might need to recompile yourself to run on on ARM. Okay, makes makes sense. It'd be interesting to see what people do with this. I, you know, I get the hypothetical or theoretical use case, but I'd like to see the actual applied use cases and see what people do. You know, those who want to play with Raspberry Pi tend to have them. 
you know, all over their house. I've seen some really true. little racks. Actually. <laughs> true, true. So it'll be yeah. neat to see what people choose. But, you know, if you think about it, if you combine this with the, I think it was the DynamoDB, uh, the serverless DynamoDB, you have a very low cost yet access to a lot of power. You've got a database and you've got a web server for peanuts that you don't have exactly. to administer. So kind of go from there. And what about the P3DN instances? Right. And that's that the opposite. Yeah. So this, uh, the A1 was the tiny instance. And now uh, AWS released some huge instances. And, and their purpose is obviously for machine learning. So uh, with these new instances, they come in with a whole lot of GPUs, depending on what you need. So you can have some nice uh, NVIDIA Tesla's uh, GPUs in there. Uh, and the amount of data that you can shuffle on these on these attached storages on these large instances is, is a whole, whole lot greater. But I think the throughput there is four times what it was previously. So we're talking 100 gigabits per second. So that's uh, very good. So people that have large data models that need a long time to train and so on, they're going to see an ex a great reduction in time and thus most probably in cost to train their models. Okay, right. And then, you know, use the marketplace and what have you and even purchase some new models and, and tools that others have created and, you know, new business opportunities as well. It's uh, that that's neat. I love how all of the cloud providers are bringing data science and machine learning to your kind of everyday person who doesn't you know, enabling those of us without PhDs to, to access some of their nifty tools. And I also can't wait because, you know, I'd really like to get more relevant. Advertising is a thing that I think we're stuck with forever, and it'd be nice if it was more relevant. So, um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely a good use case there. And But as well, you know, what we talked before, it was autonomous driving. So um, it brings me back to that little rover that AWS is selling, which is so cool. That'll be uh, pre-ordering. <laughs> oh, and when, when do pre-orders uh, open up? Do you know? I think they already did. Uh, I think the delivery time is um, March uh, 2000 of uh, next year. Okay, nice. I'm going to have to look into that myself. Like I said, like, <laughs> that looks like a lot of fun. Well, that was a good job, Pierre, sifting through, uh, you know, tons and tons of announcements. We we could have done three times as, as many, but uh, folks, these are these are the announcements that Pierre and I thought were the most valuable, most interesting, worth highlighting uh, to you. Sure, we missed a few here and there I'm, that you care about. But anyway, that's all the time we had for today. We love feedback. Please send it to datascapepodcast at gmail.com. And just a friendly reminder, we are moving over to the Datascape channel, and I will see you next year on the Datascape. If you celebrate the holidays, happy festive season. We'll catch you next year. Navigating the Cloudscape 